Hey, want to welcome everybody to another episode of You and the Law Podcast Show. I'm one of the co-hosts of the show, Virgil Green, and as always, the bearded brother sitting next to me goes by the name of Chief Swaggy One. Man, when you hear that, when you have an intro like that, brother, you know it's time to listen to the hottest podcast show around. In the world. In the world. When you can open up a have an intro like that, that that's 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 some that's some breeze right there, brother. What's going on, V? Not a whole lot. Not a whole lot, brother. How you doing? I'm great, man. I'm great. Man, I'm 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 excited about this topic, man. I think you and I are both uh very familiar with this topic. I think uh we've all been we you and I both have been a part of uh Reformation and uh I'm excited to talk about it. You know, what does it really look like inside of a police department? I know we talk about, you know, what it looks like outside. We've talked about the Wickersham Committee. Uh, we've talked about the Kerner Report. We've talked about 21st Century. But we've talked about that, and that's all good. You know, those are the roadmaps. But what, what does it really look like to implement those, and how difficult is it to implement reform inside police department. Yeah, it, it's it's going to be a good topic, man. And hopefully, you know, we'll have uh, a lot of people to tune in and join us uh, as we talk about what's the goal of police reform. What is, like you said, what does that look like within a police department? Uh, what does that look like outside of the police department within the community? So, uh, you know, we want to encourage everybody who is tuned in on our uh, YouTube channel, our Facebook channel, if you listen in on LinkedIn, we thank you for tuning in on LinkedIn. But uh, if you got a, a, a message, uh, send it in the, in the chat and we'll definitely uh, read your comments and uh, engage with you uh, as we talk about <clears throat> what is the goal of police reform. And Keith, you know, after the death of George Floyd, uh, the conversation about police reform reignited. Um, you know, back when Rodney King, the beating of, of Rodney King, 25, what, six, 26 years ago, there wasn't any conversation about police. Actually, Virgil, 30, 31 years ago. It's been that long? It's it was been 1992, if I make no mistake, 91 or 92, but it's been over okay. 30 years. Okay. Well, and, and, and so... <clears throat> Even after the, the, the horrible beating of Rodney King and the officers getting off uh, where none of them were charged. Well, statewide, they statewide, got ended up getting criminal charges. I mean, uh, federal, uh, federal. federal charges, uh, yeah, civil rights violations. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're correct. But, but Keith, I don't recall, you know, there was this big conversation about police reform. Well, it was called community-oriented policing, and it was basically it was it was it was put on the departments to uh, to engage the community uh, related to partnerships and working with the communities. Uh, it was a you know I tell people all the time because there's still a lot of people that they're so focused on community-oriented policing they don't realize you have 21st century policing, and I always tell people that. Uh, uh, community policing was the foundation, uh, but it was always shaky because it basically told, it just basically talked about partnering. Uh, you had very few chiefs that took it beyond the partnering aspect of it. And so basically it was, here it is, here's the money, go do it. And so you started developing these programs to where it made it seem that you were actually partnering with the community. And for the most part, I do believe you did have uh, departments that were actually part of weed and seed came out of that, uh, that pride, you know, that, 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 that federal. Well, you know, yeah. Uh, but you know, you, you know, Keith, when you bring up weed and seed, weed and seed had uh, a motive behind it. It did. It, 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 and, and, and the weed and seed was, it was about the, the, the growth of marijuana. It was, uh, I mean, how marijuana was, was in communities. It was the, you know, uh, other, you know, cocaine, crack cocaine, but we didn't see, again, was another way for a lot of agencies to get a lot of funding 
to implement some the weed and seed program uh, and to put uh, officers in uh, areas where uh, it was it was concentrated on the minority community, especially in the projects. It, it was, and, and if that program had been done the way it was supposed to be, it was actually a true, it was a program that was very beneficial. And a lot of the programs uh, in Texas, I will say that David Kunkel and Theron Bowman took it to a different level. I mean, they, they basically dissected community-oriented policing, and they did, they did a really good job in Arlington in explaining why it was important to, to, to do community-oriented policing. And what I really liked about Arlington Arlington built, when I first got to Arlington, they had two substations, north and west. And and so the the pilot program was on the east side of Arlington where they built the new substation. And that entire project was built on community-oriented policing. You'll hear me talk about geographical policing. You'll hear me talk about uh, the partnerships and faith-based faith-based partnerships. And so it basically, you knew from day one in the Arlington Police Academy uh, what community-oriented policing meant and what the expectations were. It's about problem solving. So let's fast forward to 21st century policing. When that uh, initiative was started, you and I were both police chiefs. And so where community-oriented policing basically said, here's the money, this is what we want you to do. 21st century policing put a roadmap Basically, the six pillars were the roadmaps, the, the arteries that fed into the community. Uh, this is what you need to do, the, the technology part, the, the community trust, the initiative on technology um, being uh, transparent with policies, looking at your policies and things like that. And then that aspect, we talk about this too, Virgil, we talk about for the first time in the history of law enforcement, you had a wellness component, not a physical wellness component, but a emotional and mental wellness component for law enforcement. So, you know, that's it. So now you've got a roadmap of what's needed to reform internally. Because what happens is a lot of people see um, what goes on, what law enforcement does in their communities. They see that, but they don't know how you get to that point. And I've always said this, if if, if an organization internally is bickering back and forth, you don't have the right to tell the community how to be, um, how to have high levels of integrity and and things like that, and, and tell the community you've got to you've got to live it in order to do it. And so, you know, when you start talking about reform, <clears throat> that's really another word for change agent. That's really another word for let's make some major changes, paradigm shifts. Those are some those are the things we're talking about, and and where police departments have a problem or police officers at times have a problem comprehending, they automatically think when you talk about reform, you're talking about they're doing something yeah. wrong, that they're being blamed for things. And and they don't understand that it's about making yourself better. You know, it's, it's that same way of you're a good high school athlete. You're trying to go to a division one school. Do you want to be able to compete with those other athletes that are also coming for going to division one schools. How do you do that? Well, you continue to get better. You know, your, your workout regime, you got to get your mind right. You got to get your heart right. You got to, you got to be open-minded. And so you can't just automatically think that um, you can't take it personally. And so that's, you know, that's one of the things that's the first start uh, of focusing and getting reform inside law enforcement yeah. agencies. Well, well, Keith, you, you know, and I think the, the one thing as we talk about what's the goal of police reform, um, it, it is something that <clears throat> there's been a lot of conversations about it. But what are leaders within the police department really doing to change with your organization from within. I mean, you got to, to me, you got to change your agency within before you start talking about implementing these reforms. Because if you've got a an agency that, uh, here's a group that understands where you're going with it. Here are some supervisors that kind of, they want to, they're doing it because they're being pushed to do it. But if you don't have that total um, uh, support and buy-in from from everybody, um, 
you're going to see things happen like what happened in 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 Memphis with Tyree Nichols, where you know the new chief came in. There were some they put in some reform. They put in some things uh, to to prevent some things from happening. But those things that they put in are implemented. They still happen. Well, you you got to be really careful uh, when you talk about reform. I think people believe that's going to happen overnight. And that's one of the things as chiefs coming in, especially from the outside. Uh, they are, um, you know, people are listening very closely to what you say during your uh, presentations yeah. and the community meetings when you're applying mm-hmm. for the jobs. And, and really, a community really believes that you can make a difference overnight. I mean, by by nature, we as humans won't change immediately. And if we don't see immediate change, uh, just our just the way we are, we think something's not working. And so, you know, I always say the old adage, you, you, you eat a, an elephant one bite at a time. You know, I've never seen anybody sit down and, and just swallow a steak, you know, based, and then, you know, that's it. You've got to do it one bite at a time. And so it, it's a plan, man. And, you know, going into, and especially I think there's, there's two um, different formats. I think if you're an internal candidate selected for a job, you know, you you go you you probably got a uh, uh, you probably not going to have as many difficulties pushing reform. Coming from the outside, it's very difficult to push mm-hmm. reform, uh, and that's why it's important to anyone out who's listening that has an ambition of being a chief. Uh, and, and for some reason, you don't you're you're not a, you're not selected inside your department internally. You have to realize. You've got a lot of pushback. Number one, there's a possibility or probability you're not going to be the person that uh, is going to that the internal um, stakeholders want, and so you you got to fight that. And then you've got to fight the fact that people are uh, wanting you to fail, and people really don't think they want change. But a lot of times, the community they don't know what type of change they want. Of course, they want less use of force. Of course, they want more police presence. Of course, they want reductions in violent crime, but they don't understand how you get to that because they've only been um, subjected to one way of doing it. And so I always tell uh, um, those leaders who are who aspire to be police chiefs, do your homework on the organization, do the homework on those individuals who are hiring you and the individuals that are the local governmental leaders and see what their buy-in is. Because rep, when you start talking about reform, that means pretty much stripping it down from the from, to the bare bones and rebuilding it. Um, you're going to have to change policies. You're going to have to go. It's going to be a lot of nights, a lot of midnight mm-hmm. oil burn, because you want to know uh, if your organization meets the needs or can rise to the needs of the um the community, and it's not just the operational needs. It's not just you know the 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 officers driving around in the cars and in the uniforms and things like that. It's what are those officers being? Tra- how are they being trained? What's the continuing education part of it? Uh, is there ongoing education? You know who's looking at your policies? Are, have you brought someone in to do a uh, overview of your organization, a review of your organization? Uh, and, and those are the type of things that you have to look at. And and uh, if if you as a new chief, if you're not, uh, especially if coming, well, either internal or external, if you're not sitting down from day one, having those meetings with your external stakeholders and internal and finding out exactly what's going on. And then another thing you have to do, Virgil, is you have to find out who's working for you. Uh, one of the things I made, a, I made it very, I made it perfectly clear that I wanted to see every supervisor's resume uh, and wanted to see what they had done um, during their tenure uh, at the department that I had been selected for, because it gives you an idea who you're going to be working with and and who has what strengths and weaknesses and where those individuals may need to go in order to carry out the mission of reform. Well, you know, Keith, and that's a a good point you make about, you know, getting to know the people um, that, are under you, uh, and one of the things that that you know I, that I've done since I've been at the agency where I am now is ask for officers to put together a professional development plan, 
uh, I want to see what kind of roadmap they have uh, for themselves and to see what the agency can do to uh, help uh, get them uh, some additional leadership training uh, and not just, you know, some training that you go online and get, but, but some really um, networking training to where you can uh, uh, get, uh, where you can see a different mixture of people uh, and, and get a better understanding of what it takes to, to be a sergeant, what it takes to be a lieutenant, what it takes to be a captain. And, uh, because uh, to me, if you put that, uh, <clears throat> if you put that time and effort into putting that together, uh, that just shows that you are, it's because as you know, sergeants are the ones who are first line supervisors. They've got a lot of influence with, with, with young police officers. So if they don't have any kind of career goals, how can they be uh, a mentor to a young 21 or 22 year old male or female coming into their agency? Well, you know what, Virgil, one of the things that we have to get away from in law enforcement, we know that we're uh, creatures of habit. We know that we don't like change, but we've got to quit falling back on that. And, you know, when it, you know, you, you hear that all the time. We don't yeah. like change. Well, you know, we, we deal with change every day. What do you mean? We deal with change every day. How many calls have you gone on that, that end up at a higher, uh, you know, a high rate, yep. I mean, yeah. a high level of, of, of response? And by the time you get there, you're down to the lowest level of um, the lowest level of of uh, the use of force, force yeah. continuum, and so or vice versa. And so we change every day. So we we realize we need to get away from that that we don't like change because every day we go to work, every call we go on, every call that we're dispatched on has the uh, possibility or probability of changing at any minute. So we we have that in us. We can we can we can adjust. We can be flexible. We've just got to stop saying that that's not. So what? That's that's number one. Number number two, um, you've got to get a complete understanding from your staff that that they understand what reform is, and you've got to take the politics out of it. I was I was doing some research on the word reform, and when you look it up, it, there's there's some some resources that say. It's a left wing. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it's but it's not. It's a it's a it's it's a, a format that has to be put in place for law enforcement to be able to respond to our ever changing communities. So it has nothing to do with left or right. It has nothing to do with that. It didn't really didn't even have anything to do with it being moderate. It's common sense knowing that we have to our communities are changing, people are changing, the demographics are changing. Uh, the median ages are changing, median incomes are changing. Uh, we have to understand that. And so we have to respond differently. I, I, I'll tell you, when I got into law enforcement 30 plus years ago, uh, faith-based organizations and police departments, that was that was a no-no. You just didn't oh, do yeah. that. And yeah. so you have to explain to, you know, part of your part of your response has to have some form of relationship with community partners. Uh, does your policies allow that? If your policies are saying that the chief of police is the only one that can talk to someone outside the, as far as community leaders and things like that, that number one is a big mistake. You want your officers. Now, Do you, is every officer capable of holding those type of conversations with community leaders? Absolutely not. But if you, if you have a training culture that prepares um, officers to improve their interpersonal skills and things like that. We shouldn't have to say, well, we can't send Officer Smith over there because Officer Smith is, doesn't understand the needs of this community. We shouldn't have to say that. Unfortunately, we do have to do that. But you have to have policies in place to where um, Officer Smith understands he is being um, um, empowered to go and, and, and do that. But your, your, your policies have to be user friendly to the, so the community can understand. And I tell the community, the communities don't get a walk in this either. Uh, the reform has to, a lot of the push of the reform is, is going to have to come from the communities at the time because, number one, we are, you're the customers of the police department. Yeah. 
And so you have to ensure or you have to know or you should want to know what your police department's being, um, what type of training and can your police department respond to the needs of anyone in a community? It doesn't matter if they're in a part of the unsheltered community, if they're part of our community that suffers from mental illness, it doesn't matter if you're low socioeconomic, you have to understand and your policies have to meet that. And so you have to look at the policies to see if they meet 21st century uh, response, uh, uh, the needs of the community. You have to, you have to focus on that. We, we missed, we, that's why it's important to have your policies online. You know what, Virgil, it's not, it's, it's, also good um, to have your communities uh, to sit down and talk to you about policies, you know, go over the policies. Now, we understand there's covert policies that you cannot share with your community. And I think the community understands that. But yeah. there, are, there are things when it comes to use of force. There are things when it comes to report taking. There are things when it comes to how do you make a complaint. Uh, I'll give you a perfect example. We did an outside uh, uh company came in and did a review of the organization. And one of the things they said, something just small, when you look at the um, um, internal affairs complaint form, it had nothing on there about ethnicity. Well, how, how do you know that you don't have a racial profiling problem when you don't have a person's ethnicity on, yeah. the, on the form? Yeah. And so those are things that that's important that we have to ensure that we have to ensure that we have uh, in, in order to know so oh, people believe in us. Mm-hmm. And so just little things like that, that's that's reform. You know, so people will know that you when you say you investigate racial profiling, they know that you mean business. We're not asking you to put your name. We just need what your ethnicity is. And it's also not bad to have someone put their age there. You don't have to put their name. But so you know that when you do your end of your year stats, you can say that we had this many complaints from um, uh, African-American community. We had this many complaints, African-American community in that age group between 25 and 30. We had this many complaints from our white community, age between 18. And I mean, those are important things. That also that re- that is reformed. It helps you understand maybe there's a there's there's some training that's that you're missing in order to address the, the the complaints that you're getting in a certain demographic. Yeah, yeah. Well, hey Keith, uh, for those who are just now tuning in uh, to the podcast show, tonight's topic is uh, what's the goal of police reform and what does police reform look like from within a police department. I've got a, a, a video clip uh, I want to uh, play. I want to ask you this question, um, and uh, on the other side of the clip, you can answer it. But when you talk about uh, reform, when you talk about the community, uh, you made a comment just a second ago about the community really needs to be involved with, uh, you know, making sure that police departments are implementing reforms. Uh, I think that's kind of the way you were going with that. But my question is, let's say you're doing, you have community uh, members and leaders in the community who are doing uh, uh, those types of uh, engagement with the police leadership and the the elected officials. But those things are are not uh, being sustained. They're not uh, you don't see where, you know, here in year one, we uh, we were told this and here year, year four, we're now really seeing some things. So, you know, I wanted to ask that, you know, answer that question on the other side of this video. But when what else can uh, community members and, and uh, uh, activists do to uh, to make sure agencies are following through with some uh, some of those police reforms? More than a year after George Floyd's death, and we're getting a look at how Americans view police violence in our country. A poll by the AP and Nork Center for Public Affairs Research apparently found Americans are more likely now to say police violence is a serious problem. However, about half of the people polled 
said Derek Chauvin's conviction did not change their level of confidence in the justice system. One third said their confidence actually increased. And tomorrow marks the one year since the death of George Floyd. And since that time, police reforms have been enacted in various states, although nothing so far has passed Congress. As Washington continues to negotiate police reform, what is the impact of all these changes having on police? Scripps reporter Joe St. George takes a closer look. The murder of George Floyd one year ago has changed a lot in this country. Murals have gone up, police reform enacted, and while Congress hasn't passed anything yet, at least 140 state laws have changed since George Floyd's murder, according to the National Conference of State Legislatures. I think across the, the country that we're seeing nationally, uh, a decline in those applying. Colonel Patrick Callahan leads the New Jersey State Police, one of the largest departments on the East Coast, and says while the protests have resulted in some common sense reform, like making sure bad cops don't get jobs elsewhere. I don't think I could stand here and say uh, that no reform is needed. It's also resulted in a decline of men and women wanting to be police officers. This is a historically low application process for us. In a typical year in New Jersey, there are anywhere between 10 to 15,000 applications to join the state police. This past year, just 3,600. The colonel doesn't blame the drop entirely on all of this police reform talk, but uh, it's part of it. People say it to, to me all the time, oh, you couldn't pay me enough to do that job. What's happening in New Jersey is happening across the country. According to the Police Executive Research Forum, there is a 63% decrease nationwide in applying to become a police officer. More early retirements are being reported too. All of this on the minds of lawmakers on Capitol Hill as they try to negotiate police reform. President Biden wanted it done by the anniversary of George Floyd's death. That won't be happening. But while a decline in being a police officer is being felt in many police departments and by many police unions, it's not being felt everywhere. <laughs> This is Barnegat, New Jersey. We're, uh, we're at the Jersey Shore. Chief Keith Germain says while other police chiefs are struggling to find officers, yep, yep. he's not. We're an anomaly there. He recently had four openings and received 400 applicants. A big reason the seaside town pays patrolmen around $130,000 a year. The high pay giving him flexibility to hire only the best and brightest. And he's seeing more city officers interested in the suburban life. Many of those applicants were NYPD, you know, New York City Police Department, PD. You have to pay them well to get them in the door. Still, though, Chief Germain is keeping an eye on Washington. While he isn't having problems recruiting officers now, he says if some police reforms are too drastic, he will. You are simply creating an environment where police officers are going to be very hesitant to take action. Still, though, whatever Congress or state governments decide to enact, both of these officers say their departments will be there. People are still going to call 911. In fact, Colonel Callahan believes this period of uncertainty may just result in the best police force this country's ever had. I think back to the greatest generation and when they came back from World War II and dug their heels in and, and built up America after World War II, I think right now is that opportunity, too. In Trenton, New Jersey, I'm Joe St. George. You know, Keith, one of the things that struck me with that uh, interview we just listened to is that men and women make up police departments. And if the men and women are have the attitudes that any type of police reform is a slap in the face, it's not something that our agency needs. And so then you you see the that 63% decline in, in in applicants then you see officers retiring early or going out on P, you know PTSD so when you talk about paying people very well uh and as you know you even if you pay officers very well you're still going to have uh, uh some bad officers but I think the question is, you, you know, can we really see that we're going to achieve uh, a high percentage of police reforms across the country? Would, even, even though there's some federal legislation that has not passed, but you've seen some state legislation. But I think when you talk about police reform, Keith, you, you, you hear so many men and women who are who are in this culture of policing who say now this is why we're, we're leaving this profession 
So, you know, Virgil, that, that's that's correct. And and I will tell you that, uh, yeah, we, we're not we're not seeing the applicants in the profession that we used to we used to be a thousand applicants for 50 positions, you know, seven or eight hundred applicants for, you know, 20 or 30 positions. That's true. What we're seeing now, we're seeing a lot of your major city officers going to your smaller suburb suburbs, number yeah. one, because of the pay. Number two, because you don't have the calls for service. You're not running from call to call to call. There's still a perception in law enforcement that you have to be heavy handed to make a difference. Mm-hmm. We understand that there are times that we have to use when we talk about the force continuum, that first level of force is just a police car. We hope we never have to get above that level of force. Then we know that the very top level of that is deadly force. We know at any given time it can go from here to here in a matter of milliseconds. We know that. Uh, I don't think the community uh, disagrees with that. I think they understand. We just haven't done a really good job of explaining it. And what we backed ourselves into is that now the easy thing to say in law enforcement is that we can't get people because it's because of reform. It's because uh, officers believe that they're going to be hung out to drive. They do something. No. How many how many uh, officer involved shootings occur that are justified and no one ever questions it? It's the ones from the departments that have had issues throughout the past when it comes to consent decrees, where it comes to excessive force complaint. Let's take let's take Darren Chauvin for for, for example. Derek Chauvin had 18 charges. I don't, I can't remember how many were sustained or unfounded or whatever, but he had, he had 18 complaints of use of force. Matter of fact, I think the last two or three had dealt with some form of force where he uh, uh, was kneeling on someone's neck. What people are upset about is the fact that how does someone continue to stay in the position when they've had that kind of, um, that kind of record. But what, what people, what officers are hearing is that, man, they're going to hang us out to dry. Nobody ever said that. I've had that discussion. They automatically think that you're going to hang them out to dry. There, there's, a, there's that perception, which becomes some officer's reality, that if I get involved in a deadly force situation or even any situation that involves force or any situation where someone from the community says that I'm not being, that I was disrespectful and things like that, then they automatically believe they're going to be thrown under the bus. That And that comes back to some of the union things where uh, it's always, and I've always, and the, and, the, and, the, and the disagreements that I've had with the union in the past is that stop saying that we're here to defend our people. Say that you're here to represent. That goes a lot a better way in the community when you say things like that. Yeah. So now it's, well, we're losing we're losing people because the chief this. We're losing people because of reform. We're losing people because of pay. We're losing people this. What they're not telling you is a lot of the people that are retiring have reached that retirement mandatory retirement level. There are a lot of people that aren't staying in law enforcement 30 some years. There's a lot of police departments that you can retire after 20 years with 60, 70% of your salary. Mm-hmm. Not telling people that. So a lot of people are taking advantage of it because there are people that don't want to go beyond it for whatever reason. I think we're going to overcome this uh, where we've seen this decrease in applications, but it's the fact that we, we're the worst enemies, the infighting, the, um, you know, jumping on TV when you do have a deadly force situation. And we know that the officer uh, violated policy, but you know, you're going to have individuals that, that defend that officer. Uh, you're going to have individuals that uh, that don't know, you know, the community. They're not aware of what your what your policies are. When you put all that together, all that confusion, you're going to have uh, you're going to have that those, those that perception that the community doesn't like us. You're going to have that perception that the police departments, police officers out here targeting uh, people, especially people of color. There's no communication. We say there is, but there's no communication. That's why I go back and talk about all the infighting inside spills out to the community because if you're infighting, how do you have time to, to reform? Yeah. I mean, how do you, how do you think about this version? How, how do you reform a police department that you've got 50 to 60 police officers that have sustained untruthfulness complaints and they're still working at the police? Are, department? 
Are they on on the uh, Brady list? Yeah. How do you how do you how do you reform a police department like that when you have officers that have sustained untruthfulness and and those who may not be following those are basically they lied at some point during an investigation Mm -hmm. or something testimony something but they were untruthful but you also have these individuals continually being able to patrol the streets. This happens all over. How do you have individuals who have five or 10 um, use of force complaints that are continued? So it's very difficult for the community to buy in when you see that. And it's very difficult when you, uh, when you know that as a chief, your hands are tied and you can only do so much, you know, you can discipline somebody, but they have a right to due process and you give somebody 10 days off. What happens is overturned and they get nothing or they get a written reprimand or they give them 30 days off or they get take that down to five days or you terminate them and they get their jobs back. That doesn't meet well with the community. It doesn't meet well inside the department a lot of times. And so that's reform. Those are that's why reform is needed. But until we can change the way that officers are represented and the methods that are used when officers are represented, I don't think you're going to have, I think you're going to continue to have these problems. Um, and, and that's a slippery slope, but when you start putting d- politics and discipline in the same pot, um, you know, that you're telling people that it's okay to throw somebody's head against the wall because they're a bad person. Everybody out here is not a bad person. Everybody who make, who's arrested is not a bad person. Everybody who's in jail doesn't mean that they're an evil person. You say that criminals are evil. So if you commit a crime, you know, you're, you're considered a criminal. And so now you put everybody who's committed a crime, whether it's a white-collar crime, misdemeanor, whatever, you put everybody in the pot. Now everybody's seen as a bad person. So now what you do in order to get the communities back the way they are, you got to, you got to show some force. You got to do this. You got to do that because we don't want to lose our communities. Yeah. Well, you know, Keith, one of the things that, that I recently heard um, uh, where officers said, Hey, you know, uh, our elected officials, uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, Hypothetically, if, if something happened, if we went out and did something, um, will you come out and say that this was, uh, that this was justified? Um, and if, and if a city manager or a mayor, uh, doesn't say those words that officers want to hear, then all of a sudden the, the narrative is, well, you don't support us. We don't feel supported. And I don't want to work for somebody who doesn't support support us because if we go out here and we do something and uh, we want to know that you got our back. Well, that's a very big, broad uh, ask of police officers to to do that, knowing that if you go out and you do something there's going to be an investigation, an eye investigation. Policies are going to be looked at. And if it was determined that you did something well within policy, uh, then you're going to have the police chief or the city manager or the mayor come out and say, hey, the process worked. Uh, we fully support our police officers. We fully support our police department. I just, I think when you get into those type of really, uh, uh, small-minded uh, conversation or small-minded, you know, say, well, uh, if we go in, in and do a traffic stop and this happens, we need to know you support it. I think that is where uh, there, there's, there's, there's this control uh, with that. And I think that's get things really clouded uh, because you can't, I can't ask a city manager uh, or a mayor to to say, "Yeah, come out and and make a statement like that." You you, you can't because, and let's just go back to something that you mentioned about um, that happened up in Minneapolis with uh, with uh, Chauvin. It was just released what several weeks ago, where 
he had multiple complaints against him. And uh, some of those, Keith, there was body cam footage of him leaning on people's necks. Do he did the same thing to, to one kid who was 15 years old, mm -hmm. and he did the same thing to a female that he did to when he killed George Floyd. So, and you had a sergeant who was present at those uh, interactions. But the thing that gets me, Keith, is that the agency had body cam footage of those incidents that happened. One incident when the kid was 15 years old and now he's 21. Right. So so the, the, the thing about it is, and I've always said this, man, when you when it comes to those use of force, it's just like that chokeholds, uh, tasing and things like that, where you have that, you know, is there situations where you might be an officer that has to use their taser? You know, we talk about early intervention that's had to use their taser, say, say six times in a month. That there are those situations. That doesn't mean that officer's overutilizing it. That doesn't mean he's being excessive. That that means that there were six times that we know of that that officer deployed his taser and had to utilize it. There may have been another. We never talk about the, the, the other 15 or 16 times where he deployed it and didn't have to, and he got compliance. The, the fact of it is, and I've said this before, and, and this is where reform, a big part of reform, it's education. The use of force is never pretty. That's why it's important that it's, that it's applied um, correctly, and you have to have the proper training, and you have to communicate. There are things that, uh, I'll give you a perfect example, the lateral vascular neck restraint. There have been cities that have made ordinances forbidding any type of chokehold. Well, it's not a chokehold. Uh, it is a it is a use of force that could be level up to deadly, but it's one of those situations where there's nothing else that can be utilized in order to get a person under control. You don't utilize a weapon. I mean, I've, I've seen that that applied numerous times in my career, where officers could have utilized firearms but they utilize the lateral vascular neck restraint to get a person under control and immediately, you know, you're trained as immediately have that person um, observed by medical staff. Correct. A lot of communities don't understand that. A lot of communities, and we always say it looks bad, it's not pretty, but this is what we needed to do at that time to say, to, to, to not use deadly force, a gun. And so we're not teaching people that. What should have happened, and my question will be, and I think that's why there was such a big civil settlement in the George Floyd thing, is that this gentleman uh, had, uh, this person had so many excessive force complaints uh, that were pretty much just brushed off. Uh, and that's why you have to look at your policies. That's why reform is important. Case in point, there were there, uh, and I believe it was the Cincinnati Police Department or one of the police departments in Ohio that uh, their policy allowed for uh, multiple police officers to get involved in a high speed, in a pursuit. In a pursuit, yeah. In a pursuit. That was part of their policy. Now, does that does that make sense? Probably not. But if that was their policy, you have people that say, well, I, I didn't violate policy. So then you had to look at your policy and then you have to look at it and say, okay, what, what's wrong with this? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, what is yeah. wrong with this? Uh, that's the other thing, part of reform. You don't want to make a knee-jerk reaction and change your... Uh, because in our line of work, there's things that we have to have. You have to have a use of force policy because you're going to use force. You have to have an internal affairs investigation process because people are going to make complaints. It doesn't... But I think what happens is people, just like officers and civilians out here, when a civilian makes a complaint, and it and it and it ends up the results of that of that investigation shows the officer did not violate policy. They get they they take it personally. That, that some civilians take that person citizens take that personally that you did not take their complaint seriously. Well, no, it's the fact that they didn't do anything wrong. It, you know, I know how this may have looked or how it may appear, but within policy, they didn't violate policy. Now, do we need to look at policy to see? Yeah, sure. You should be looking at policy every every day. I mean, it's nothing you should be looking at once a year. Policy is an ongoing, fluent review. It's a very fluid review. But and then police are the same way. If if something happens, 
Um, and, and, I, and I tell people this, man, police in the community have sometimes have the same mindset. What do you, what do you mean, Keith? Well, they take things personally <laughs> or they take information that they don't have all of the facts. So do you think as an officer, if I get terminated for uh, using excessive force uh, and I violated policy and I use unnecessary force and hurt someone or worse, do you think I'm going to tell my partners the whole story? I'm going to leave bits and pieces out. Yeah. You know, and so I'm, they're going to the, the rest of the department is going to take the information that's provided by that officer or the union. And they're going to and they're going to stand on that. And they're going to say that you did something wrong, that the chief is picking on people. Same thing with the community. They're going to take this. It's, it's not all of them, but there's that individual that you arrest, that they did something wrong. They were speeding. They were driving. 85 miles an hour in a school zone, you make a you make you make an arrest or whatever, you write a ticket. They're not going to tell about the 85 miles an hour in the school zone. They're going to say, I wouldn't do anything wrong. And then there are people out there that's going to latch on to it. I didn't do anything wrong. And that's what they're going to, that's the hill they're going to fight. Yeah. So that that's that's why that's why reform is important. That's why it's important to have that that connection. We don't utilize our Citizens Police Academy alumni. We don't utilize our faith-based organization. We don't utilize our um, nonprofits. We don't utilize our our local governmental officials to sit down and talk. We don't do that. And so that's how we're in. That's why it's so difficult to push reform because we're trying as police officers and police chiefs, we think we have all the answers and we don't. Yeah. Well, Keith, we got a, a comment in the chat from uh, Veronica Ferguson who says policies should be reviewed whether something happened at your police department or not or, or another uh, department, especially if it gets national attention. And I think that was one of the things that, you know, just to piggyback off of her uh, comment, is that it shouldn't take for some type of incident to occur at your agency for I you agree. to uh, review your policies to make sure that your policies are in line with with uh, with, with those type of uh, uh, reforms. And I think, you know, a lot of those uh, things think can be avoided uh, if you have some very strong systems put in place. And I think this is. Yeah. You know what I could you know what I used to call? It? I used to call it the tire warranty policy. You know what that is? You don't do anything until you have a blowout. Blowout, yeah, exactly. You don't you don't get your tires rotated. You don't, get yeah. you don't check your air until it's too late. Yeah. So you call it the you call it we call it the tire warranty policies. Yeah. Well, and you're right. You know, and the thing of it, and I think that is what we and as you you made this comment earlier, Keith, we are policing has become their own worst enemy. Yeah. And the fact that then when you put the politics in it, uh, if we go back and we talk about, you know, legis you know, federal legislation uh, uh, about police reform, you've got both sides are having a problem. You have Democrats, you have a Republican. Nobody knows how to come together to separate the politics to say we need to have some federal oversight some federal policy in place that states and agencies need to follow when it comes to let's say if you discipline an officer and and he's terminated right. well he's not able to go to uh the next state or he's not able to go over uh to another agency and become a police officer there because you've got some things put in place that will prevent that. Well, states have gotten better on that. Uh, I do know in Texas, I do know in Oklahoma, I do know in Arkansas, there's requirements when someone leaves, they've been left in good standing or whatever, they left under investigation, they were terminated and things like that. That goes in that form. And just to kind of bring the citizens up, the, the listeners up on that, every state, uh, an officer has to be licensed by a licensing agency. So in Texas, it's uh, TECO, Texas Commission of Law Enforcement um, Executives. And it's different every state. You hear POST, 
Um, That's what they have up in Minnesota. Yeah, you're close. Oklahoma has cleat. Yes. And so you have to go, when you go through the academy, you go through training, you sign off saying I've met all the minimum requirements of the state to be licensed as a peace officer, which is a police officer. Uh, It used to be where you get fired, you can go somewhere else. The department calls and they say, um, oh yeah, he's, he's good. He's a good officer. No problem. Now, as a chief, you're required to sign off on a document. I know in Texas, it's an F5. And on the back, there's a checklist. Uh, retired honorably, uh, resigned under investigation, um, and or terminated. You have to check one of those. Uh, that goes in your file. And so when the next agency calls, they want to see your F5 to see why you left the department. And so they make a decision. Now, it's up to that chief to make a decision on if he wants to hire that person or not. But that that's in place. That's that's probably in the last 10 or 15 years we've seen that come into play because that was something that didn't happen. You would you would say anything positive about someone that you didn't want working for you. You'd say anything positive about them to get them to move to another department. And the term was used and I don't like this term, but the term was called gypsy cops. That's what I don't I don't like that term. Yeah. gypsy, But yeah. that's what people were known as gypsy cops. Yeah. Uh, and so um, they were they were moved from department to department to department, get fired, whatever, go to another department. And think about this to the to the listeners. If I'm an officer that worked in a large municipal agency and I've got all this training, which is probably three times more training than the state requires. And I no longer work for this smaller age, this larger agency. And then there's a smaller agency of 10 officers. 10 officers and I can hire this person. They've been through all this training through this midst, this large city. Of course, you're going to bring them in because you don't have to spend money on that training. They're already certified. You don't have to spend that money on their training and things like that. So people mm-hmm. take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that, that, that's a part of reform that did happen uh, in law enforcement that didn't happen when I first got started. Yeah. Well, and, and Keith, you know, and as we talk about, Form reform within police departments. What does that look like? Um, and and now you know after the the death of uh, the tragic death of Tyreek Nichols, once again here was this conversation about police reform on a you know state level as well as on a federal level, and uh, once again it has become very political. And I guess, you know, here's a question that uh, that is not often talked about a lot, Keith, is that here we are once again dealing with the death of a unarmed black uh, man. Uh, there's been black men, black women uh, killed at the hands of police officers, and we still are having this struggle to uh, implement some serious reforms that would prevent another Tyreek Nichols or prevent another uh, Breonna Taylor or prevent another George Floyd. Uh, and, and I get, you know, the, the public is probably like, listen, we continue to hear you all talk about this, but we don't see any movements. And I think this is where strong leadership comes into play to say we are going to implement our own police reforms. We, we're not going to wait on the state. We're not going to wait on the federal government. We're going to implement some police reforms. So if these things do happen, we have these reforms in place. Well, you, you have a lot of, of chiefs that don't want to utilize their managerial rights. They're so worried about being liked. They're so worried about being popular. They're afraid to even, even union contracts state that, based on the fact that there are areas of this contract that that fall under manager managerial rights of the police department mm-hmm. and you have to be so you, you you can't be afraid to make those choices and so many people do not want and you know my story Virgil you know it's when you go inside from the outside and you see things I mean you know, when, since when is it right for someone's brother to work for them? You know, when yeah. is it right for someone who's in a higher executive level to have their brother work in their in their bureau or for them? Yeah. Same thing for the son. 
Yeah. How is that right? You know, how is that right to have husbands and wives working together uh, on the same shift and getting mm-hmm. involved into in domestic arguments while on duty? Yeah. You know, when is it right mm-hmm. for someone to stay in a uh, narcotics division 30 years? I mean, when is that right? And so when, when you when you recognize that, when is it right for people not to have audits uh, over property rooms, over narcotics and things like that? And then when you come in and you try to do that, you get pushback. Um, Correct. So you have to be willing to to accept that and, and 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 fight through that because at the end of the day, what's right? You're not making you're not making policies for you. You're making policies for that are going to you know your reform should be positive for this community and for the department. It's not about being positive just for the the chief. It's about what is best for the organization, you know, and so and and the community. Because the organization doesn't exist unless the community allows it to exist. And I think a lot of times people don't recognize that, Virgil. I think that the average citizen, they don't think they have any say in police reform. That's where it starts. Well, it, it, and I think that was that's the question. Where, that's where it starts, yeah, yeah. holding and people accountable. And that's the question I think I asked you earlier. You know, uh, what can communities do to feel that they have a, a voice? in making sure that police departments are uh, implementing, you know, very good common sense police reform. So in every, I think in every jurisdiction, there should be something in that city charter that states that a police chief will on an, on an annual or biannual basis, make uh, present to the community, the, um, the state of the department. Mm-hmm. I think I think when you do that and people hold you accountable and they're expecting that in January and in June and July, whatever, mm-hmm. that you're going to make that state of the department. Uh, I think the police departments should have open houses. I think the police police departments need to have some form of, commu- of uh, citizens police academy. Mm-hmm. I think that they should. I think all departments should have their policies online. I, I, I think that that's a start. And I think yeah. that there should be mandated meetings with community leaders and police chiefs regarding policies. What's going on in your department right now? What 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 changes can we expect? You know, why you know, we've read about 21st century policing. Are you all doing that? Well, show us where you do what steps. If we go down each one of those pillars, where's your department at in this pillar, this pillar, this pillar? I yeah. think that needs to be mandated. Yeah, I, I, I think I think those needs to be those need to be mandated uh, for any police chief, police executive, and any city manager, any mayor should have to live by those guidelines. Yeah, you, you know, Keith, you just uh, you use something that I think man going to be a part of a, a, a topic for a podcast show. Uh, I think we need to talk about Citizen Police Academy. Absolutely. What is, because again, what is the the narrative behind? What is the intent? What is the narrative, and what is the outcome? And I, I would really like to get on some people who have been through a, a citizens police academy to hear their experience uh, as a citizen. What they what they learned, what they didn't learn, or what were some of those things that they said? Hmm. Wow. Uh, but you know, man, we're coming up on the last few minutes of the podcast, brother. And uh, as always, it's always good to be in your company. T Swaggy. You too, brother. You know, uh, Mr. Cigar, Cigar Brother. Absolutely. <laughs> you got to smoke a cigar, man. <laughs> All right. Hey, man, you, you know what? Uh, for those who have tuned in to us um, tonight, if you miss any parts of this uh, episode, you can go to our Facebook page, follow us on our Facebook page, like our Facebook page, check us out on Spotify, uh, all the other podcast platforms, and make sure you tune in next Thursday at 6 p.m. for one of the, the hottest podcast shows in the, the world, as Chief Swaggy One puts it, uh, because where we will talk about very informative topics that matter to you uh, in the community. So, brother, it's been good, and uh, we'll uh, we'll do we'll do this again next Thursday. 
Absolutely, man. To everybody, thank y'all for listening, and uh, y'all have a good night. All right.